Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival podcast. We hope you enjoy this event, which was recorded live at the 2020 Book Festival. Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. This event is the Enlightenment of the Green Gauge Tree by Shukufe Azar. Um, I'm Marjorie Lotfi-Gill, the co-founder of Open Book. I'm an Iranian-American writer as well. And I'm here with Shukufe today, who was born in Iran in 1972. She's lived in Australia in exile since 2010. She's a journalist. She's written countless essays and articles. She's a children's author and an artist. And this book here is her first book to be translated from Farsi into English. It was shortlisted for the Stella Prize for Fiction in Australia, but also shortlisted for the International Booker Prize, who are also sponsoring this event. So thank you very much to them. The story follows largely one family through the Iranian Revolution and the years that follow it, um, as they they flee from Tehran into the hills to avoid the horrors of war. It mixes that horror along with the beauty of the landscape, the discussions between the living and the dead, and all sorts of beautiful imagery that kind of encompasses magic realism and mysticism and all sorts of things that I'm hoping we'll get to discuss today. So welcome to Shukufe. Thank you for being here with us. Um, and I think uh, we'll just get started by asking how you came to write this book. You know, is it a book that you've been carrying around with you since you left or during your time in Iran? Is it something you always thought you wrote, you'd write, or is it something that just came to you as you started writing? Oh, hello, Marjorie, and thank hello. you very much. Hello. For... <laughs> uh, and um, in regard to your question, so I always want to be a writer as a child, and then also in the same time, I had chance to live in a heart of a forest in northern Iran. And at the same time, I loved uh, people believes, ordinary people believes, Iranian believes about the supernatural creatures, Iranian mythology, and also, and then when I became a journalist um, later, when I was young, I, I was, you know, I mean, I was after finishing my university. So I discovered that I also love politics and facts and documentaries and so when I want to write this novel, I collected all of this, my favorite subject, and brought in one dish, in one novel. Uh, but um, you say that um, this is how this story became, you know, came to my mind. So it, it started in 2000, almost end of 2011, and um, imagination of a, a little girl, a 12, 13 years old girl came to my mind. And for six months, she was stuck in my head. And all the time, whenever I went, I saw her or I saw her that she come to me and look at me silently without talking. And suddenly, one, one day, finally, I became so angry. And I said, OK, let's sit and see what she want to tell to me. And uh, this is her story, actually. I thought this story will be a short, short story, but this became to uh, it's changed to a novel, and I think this is Bahar's story, yeah. which is maybe my story when I was a teenager. <laughs> okay, and yeah, I wanted to ask you how you chose her, and I don't think it's giving anything away because we learned fairly early on in the story that 
she's she's died so it's a story of a, of a young girl and at first we hear her story and then we realize she's passed away um how did you decide to give the voice to someone who isn't living anymore yes so uh, first of all technically i wanted a narrator who see everything yeah who can be everywhere and uh, but in same time is a one of a character not just a voice. I didn't want to my my narrator be just a voice. I want to be a character inside of okay. my story, but in same time, be able to see everything and hear everything. So, uh, in the first 50, 70 you know pages when I wrote, I felt that uh, Bahar is great for this position, but she's alive and she cannot doing this. And at the same time, I had I heard lots of a story about people who killed unwantedly during the Islamic Revolution. So many people, you know, many um, emotional people who want this regime and they've been so happy of doing this revolution. They attacked houses, they attacked, you know, banks, they attacked in many places, as we see now a day, even in the, you know, all revolution, we see this kind of chaos and many innocent people died in this kind of, you know, activities, you know, revolution and chaos. So Bahar was also, uh, uh, just one of them. Um, it should represent innocent people who just died unwantedly during of the first few days of revolution. Yeah, I, I should say I remember that myself, you know, family members, other friends who disappeared or died in those heady first days. Yeah. And also, and it seems a really strange thing in the story, but it's really common. And even that escape to the forest, the family decides to yeah. take off. Exactly. And, and usually we don't have uh, official news about that, them. We don't have documentary about them. They are just verbal story that we hear, especially in the country like Iran, that uh, verbal culture, oral culture is very strong. So we have lots of a story that we can hear, but we never read anywhere. So yeah. I thought maybe the good situation, a good decision actually to bring this kind of oral story on base of true story to the you know written book. And here is the question because she becomes the narrator and and she she tells us the story of she's not the only dead person in the book who's got a story and who is effectively having a life and in many places for me the 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 dead have a more interesting life than the living you know they have more powers they have more joy in some ways i don't know if joy is the right word were you trying to give them back something were you trying to give them back what they lost or were you I wondered at times whether it was a form of grieving, you know, to give them a, give them their lives in a way. I don't know yeah. if that was something that you decided to do. Yeah, maybe. And also, you know, I was very, um, um, I love my father also. So my father was a kind of, you know, a very educated and um, kind of people who were against of Islamic revolution since this regime started. And, uh, I, and I also wanted to say that these people uh, had lots of a story. We never heard them. We never had chance to write, read about them because censorship in Iran is so strong that 
anything against of this regime has no any chance to be published. And so I thought these people should, these dead people, my father passed away about 20 years ago. And there are many people, many beloved people around of me that they died without having chance to tell what they want to say about this regime or even what they, what they believe about Islam. So I thought that I should give voice to these dead people. And it was kind of, you know, showing my respect to their voice. Yeah. And I guess um, one of the things I wondered was whether it kind of brings them back or brings them back into a category so that you can, we can all see them. But one of the things I wanted you to expand on, I think I know the answer for my own family, is there is this feeling in Iran that the dead are still around. Um, yeah, at least it was exactly. in my family. They come to you in exactly. dreams. They do all sorts of things. Yeah, that, you know, that is very important things. That is closer than our neck vein. You know, in Iran, we usually say this, that, you know, every every day you wake up, you don't know what's been happening your, you know, next hour. So I personally experienced that few times in my life when I came to Australia by boat five days in the ocean with in roofless, you know, asylum seekers boats and in the you know stormy ocean it was um it was so scary and also when i was in the jail and also when i was in afghanistan in my traveling in 2004 i remember one night i went to to the an afghanian uh, family house that in the midnight he just as a um, uh, he just wanted to say that their life, how is their life based And suddenly he brought up his gun in front of my face and said, could you believe that I have five guns right now in this house? So I faced that many times. And so, and I think it's very um, easy for us to die. And every day that we are alive is like, you know, miracle. And so, as much as we appreciate life, we should think of this. And, you know, in Iranian culture, we respect this, dead people. And also we all the time think they are around of us. And I think I don't think it's just about us. It's about, I think, everybody in the world. You know, we, we when we love someone, we think of them. And when we think of them, we feel them. And uh, it is funny if I tell you even sometimes I feel I, I smell my father's tobaccos. Yeah. 18 years ago so uh, yes and it is in, in our mythology in literature there are tons of stories about this in our in mythology we have Sohrab we have Siavash we have Rostam we have Farhad you know very uh, important literary icons and mythology icons that they died so I believe that if I want to be a narrator of our culture my culture Iranian culture I should I should consider all of this yeah and it's not as unusual as it might feel to a western reader it's definitely part of the day-to-day -day. I remember as yeah. a little girl my father saying you know if I'd had a dream about a car accident he would say okay we won't drive today because it's just very much people yeah, exactly. someone comes and says something to you in a dream and you have to listen you know it's yeah. completely different and maybe different than we might see it now yeah that's right it's probably different too i wanted to ask about it because it's different than the way we might think of iran at the moment because you know with islam and the news coming out of iran it's a completely different thing than we would hear than this kind of mythological mystic feel but i think it's yeah. still very much part of the culture 
It is very much. And also um, imagine that now a day, right now that we are talking, every single day, two to three people are executed in Iran. Iran is the, he has huge number of execution, his highest number of execution after China. But if we consider the population of Iran and compare population of Iran with China, we find that Iranian Iran's kill more people than China. It's about 700 people every year. And this is official number. We don't know lots of unofficial news that they are true. We are talking about Iranian regime that they hide information all the time. So this is around of me all the time. And also look in the book, all of my favorite books, writers are dead. But I feel them and I, you know, I I am live with their opinions, their ideas of life, you know, their the beauty of, you know, the, that they add to our lives. So I think our life is not really far from this. And books are beautiful. Yeah, they are. Is this a good moment for me to read a little bit of the story for the audience? Um, Shukafe has asked me to read um, chapter six, so I, I'll do that for her, and then we can get on to discussing it. There was no news from Sohrab because he was waiting. He was waiting for the executions to end. They did end. Some say it was September 27, 1988, and some say it was later. Either way, they eventually came to an end. 5,000 men and women, young and old, whose only crime had been their political or religious beliefs, were killed in the prisons of Tehran, Kharaj, Mashhad, and other cities. Once they had all finally died, and their corpses had fed the crows and stray dogs in the desert, they didn't sit idle. They set off. The ghosts of 5,000 political and religious prisoners rose up from the city's deserts and from around Tehran and Kharavan. They looked at their stinking, maggot-infested body parts strewn about and carried in all directions in the mouths of crows and dogs. And then they set off with a common loathing. They wanted to see their murderer's face up close. They could have appeared instant, instantly in Khomeini's bedroom the man who had signed their execution orders. But memorializing their recently lost lives, they decided to walk in silent accord. It was thus that groups of doleful, unhappy ghosts set off from the southern, western, and eastern deserts of Tehran and converged at the intersection of Valias. Hands in their pockets or smoking cigarettes that some had stolen from the passerby, 5,000 ghosts marched toward Valias Square, Vanak, Tadrish, and then on to Jamaran Street, Khomeini's Street. They looked at the men and women who rocked right through them without so much as sensing their presence. They looked at the children who could be their own, at crowded stores and streets filled with vendors, at the city theater, at Khod's Cinema, Sai Park and Meli Park. How dynamic life still was without them. How full of cotton candy outside the cinema and fortune telling with walnuts. How full of boutiques and bookstores and gold sellers. How quickly the boys still fell in love with girls, following them around and handing them their numbers. How glorious the plane trees on Valias Street were still were. How many cats and crows there were in Tehran. 
filling their non-existent lungs with air. They wandered until it got dark and then they decided to go against going to face their murderer. They realized their sorrow was too great for the murder of their murderer to make anything better. Life and death took on another form as they walked on and looked at the faces of the living. Nostalgia and hopelessness filled all of their hearts. Gradually, the city fell silent. Lovers emerged from restaurants and cinemas two by two, disappearing into the maze of alleyways. Shop lights were extinguished and here and there, the homeless lit fires around which they gathered. The city streets became empty. The smell of warm food filled the air and the muffled sound of nighttime talk filtered out from the windows. Suddenly, the ghosts felt so sad that their constricted throats burst open. Walking north from Van Ack Square, 5,000 miserable ghosts began to cry. They cried, and they cried, and they cried. They cried because they missed eating dinner with their loved ones. They wanted herb stew, meat and eggplant stew, and barbary chicken. They missed the carefree laughter alongside their families, their kisses and goodnights. Their tears flowed and flowed until they turned into a torrent. Here and there, passerby who had missed the last buses looked up at the star-filled sky and wondered where the deluge was coming from. It was only the homeless addicts and vagabond lunatics whose inner eyes saw that a river of tears up Ballyast Street flowed ahead of 5,000 despairing, crying ghosts, marching like a vanquished army, occasionally leaning against the old plane trees and keening in a funeral lament. The flood reached Tadrish Square and Jamaran Street, crossed the bridge over the dry riverbed and flowed under the feet of plainclothes officers. It entered the courtyard and ascended the steps, soaked the rugs and made its way directly to Ayatollah Khomeini's bedroom, where it climbed up the feet of his twin bed and reached him as he lay in a fitful sleep at 2.32 in the middle of an ordinary summer night. He was having his usual nightmare. He was dreaming that thousands of family members of people executed had surrounded him in Azadi Square and were ripping and clawing at him with such savagery that not even one drop of his blood hit the ground. He awoke with a fright and felt the stickiness of his sweat on his fingers, toes and temples. He rolled over, scratched his long bushy beard and when he saw that his baggy shirt, mattress and pillow were wet, he sat up with a start. He was afraid it was his own blood that had made everything so wet and slimy. He stuck his finger in the moistness and brought it to his tongue. It was salty and slightly viscous. It didn't taste like blood. It tasted like tears. Frightened, he got out of bed and put his decrepit 80-year-old feet on the wet carpet and sunk into it up to his ankles. He groped around for the light switch and flicked it on. He then saw that his room was submerged in tears. His heart constricted with fear of death and he let out a terrifying scream sending the guards into a panic, bringing the termites who were gnawing away at the wooden ceiling to a standstill and giving fright to some sleepy Eurasian collared doves. 
Eight usually indolent guards jumped up and rushed into the house with weapons loaded and followed the flow of tears from Ruhala Khomeini's room all the way to Vanak Square, next to the maze of alleyways where the addicts and homeless had fallen asleep under the house windows with the lingering smell of warm dinners. It took three days and nights of diligent, obsessive cleaning before the puddles of tears were all mopped up from the recesses of the house on Rabari dead end off Jamaran Street. He continued to find large puddles in strange places, however, into which he would stick the tip of his right little finger, taste it, and yell out in anger and fear until 10.20 on the night of June the 3rd when Khomeini died. Once, when brushing his hand over the mantle in search of his glasses, he found it drenched in tears. He shrieked so loudly that for three days he couldn't talk for the sore throat it had given him, cancelled a meeting with supporters among clerical leaders in Qom, and retreated fearfully into a mysterious underground room that was still under construction. It was thus that at daybreak the next morning, after the tear-filled procession, the sorrowful, wandering ghosts each set off alone. Some returned to their families in villages and cities, Others remained on the streets of Tehran, paying homage to the aspirations and dreams of the fiery days of the revolution, and in the hope of one day seeing their own eyes, the destruction of the regime that had killed them like flies. And still others were so repulsed by earthly events that they began a quest for transcendence in the spirit world. Sohrab was among the latter. So that's a great example of you taking politics and what's happening in the story and a bit of magic realism maybe and winding them together. Did it feel brave to write that chapter? Yes, actually, anytime that I read this chapter, I cry. And you read it very beautifully. Thank you very much. <laughs> And so, as I said, yes, this is everywhere. And, um, and we don't, we shouldn't forget that uh, this novel all is about the hidden execution that happened by this regime, Iranian regime, in uh, decade 80. So the whole story is about the voice of people who never had chance to have voice because they executed unfairly in the jail. And as I said, in the novel, only in one month, some people say 5,000 people and some people say even 15,000 people are executed. And youngest of them being something like 10, 11 years old until, you know, people like 60, 70, 80, 90 years old, just because their political views were different of this regime. And it is sad. It's really sad. Anytime that I think of these people and the whole story around of us in Iran is about this. Right now that we are talking, five young people are under the execution just because of the last year um, protest in the street. Yeah. And one of the things that's interesting is that it, it brings up this question of who disappears and who decides. You, you say in the story that Quite often the people, including Sohrab, they don't even know what they've done. Often it's just mm -hmm. holding a pamphlet yeah. or reading something that you're not supposed to read. So I, what, what you do, I think, beautifully is bring in that sense of fear that surrounds the life in Tehran. Yeah. And 
the family, the idea that this family goes off to the, the hills, the forest to try and escape that. But even then they can't escape it. It, it eventually gets there as well. And what, what it does to a culture to live under that kind of fear. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is what I want to say, actually, that, you know, uh, this uh, regime took every ways that we need, we want to take a breath. We can breathe in Iran. If yeah. you think, if you are a thinker, if you are an artist, if you are a journalist, if you are a, even, even if you want to just uh, provide simple, secure life in Iran, and you are, for example, a worker, a labor, you are kind of political issue for this regime because because you don't, you need to talk about your right. And this regime doesn't want anyone to talk about the rights. Laborers, children, women, doesn't matter. No one has any right to talk about their rights. Only the, the rights should be dictated by the regime to people. It's one way. There is no conversation between regime and people. It's always this order comes from up to down and people should be silent doesn't matter what you think, doesn't matter what you need. People can nowadays, especially in the last 10 years that I am out of Iran, I, every day I follow Iranian news, every day for, for example, like 10 times a day, I search and check Iranian news. And I see the situation is worse and worse. Yeah. Even people who believe in this regime now, they don't any, you know, hope. People who wants, for example, to change little bit this regime to, uh, we, you know, 20 years ago, we had a green movement. Green movement was huge. I mean, we had a, what is the word? Oh, I've forgotten. In the Khatami time, we thought that we can little bit change this regime to just have, be able to breathe. Yeah. But they couldn't, they didn't accept that. And 20, 12 years ago, we had a green movement. Again, huge number of people, millions number of people came to a street and by silence, by even we had silence protests. Yeah. With all of the, you know, the, you know, with all of the, you know, respect to this regime to show, okay, we are, we are all living to this same country. Just listen to us. They don't want to listen. They just arrest us and keep us in the jail for a long, long time or send, you know, execute people. And yeah. horrible, horrible news every day happen. And my novel is just a small story of all of bad things that happen in Iran. But it also does the magical thing of bringing the beautiful things that are happening at the same time. So there's scene after scene of... Um, something horrible happening alongside something absolutely beautiful. The, yeah. the image of birds flying or the image of, you know, when we're talking about a death, we're also talking about what you can see. It's this, it, yeah. And it, for me, it feels like what you're saying is there is still this beautiful life happening. We just don't see it. But do you think in homes and in the way that Rosa in the book, the mother in the book, refuses to go back to Tehran because she doesn't want to cover? You know, she lives yeah. a real life, a real life in some ways in this forest. Is, are you telling us that that's happening, you know, that we just don't see yeah, it from the outside? Kind of. Yeah, kind of. And also I'm telling that there are many potential in Iranian culture. I don't talk about Islam. I don't talk about mm. Islam. 
revolution, I talk about Iranian culture, Iranian literature, Iranian art, Iranian Persian, you know, Persian rock, Persian miniature, you know, all of this beauty, Iranian scientists like Ibn Sina, like Razi, Razi is one of my characters in novel, in yeah. this novel, and lots of thinkers, lots of a beautiful, beautiful people and arts and nature, and still we have them. Still, we have mythology. Still, we have, for example, Zoroastrian taught about life. We have Mitraism taught about life. There are many, many beauty in this life, and I want to show in the same time. Kind, I try to do kind of balance in my novel to not be just narrator of the ugliness of the truth of life. In you know, in last forty years, I want to say. Still, there are hope. There's still, there are many beauty. Even this can be beautiful yeah. if we want to look at this. So this is why I use lots of Iranian mythology, Iranian folks, uh, Persian rugs, Iranian even you know house, uh, you know buildings, you know Qajar style of the house, you know all of this to just show. And also Iranian Iran's uh, nature is amazing, amazing, especially in northern Iran that I raised in the forest, Hirakian forest. So there are many beautiful things and people are beautiful. Mm. And I try to bring all of this together, maybe as a suggestion to my reader, especially Iranian reader, to think that still there is hope if we can learn where to look at. Yeah, that you're not beaten by it somehow, that there still exists this beautiful interest in and the the description of fruits and flowers and dragonflies, all these sorts of things I recognize as well from my own childhood and also, you know, living in exile with Iranians. This is always Mm -hmm. around, you know, the the orange trees matter, the pomegranates matter, the the nuts matter, all these sorts of things really matter in a way that they might not in the West. So, but it feels like almost a resistance of its own to continue um, and is it? It is Beta in the story, the sister in the story. You can absolutely tell whether where she is based on whether she's recognizing the garden and hacking it back and bringing it to order or letting it go, as well mm-hmm. as her her lover Isa. This mm-hmm. idea that they the, our relationship to nature somehow reflects where we are, um, yeah. and that you're not beaten by it somehow. I don't know if you wanted it to be positive in that way, but it felt like that to me. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I want to I want to show all of you know positive and negative side of the life inside of Iran in the last forty years. And as you mentioned, you know, like uh, interpreting that, for example, even dragonflies, it just mm. just you know potentially is beautiful. And if we learn how to look at this kind of beliefs that. Uh, still is not scientific. Yes, we know that still is not you know. It maybe doesn't ever change our life when you interpret the, the, the way that, for example, a, a dragonflies, you know, sit on the flower or the color of the, you know, the, the, these insects. But, but it is beautiful. If we just learn how to look at this life, how to look at it, even a small leaf, is there are amazing beauty in just small things in the nature. And in the culture, I'm talking about Iranian culture with six, seven, eight thousand of civilization. Yeah. I'm talking of Iranian culture that you know we had amazing, um, what is the word? Uh, you know, uh, literature. 
written, you know, we've written stories and mythology from thousands of years ago. We are talking about, you know, uh, for example, uh, 1001 nights that base of this story is created in Iran and on base of Iranian stories. So we have many, many beautiful things. And I want to just present this beauty while also I'm showing the ugliness, ugliness side of us. I mean, you know, all of this is us, we Iranian. We have beautiful side, which is, I believe, which is Iranian culture. And we have ugliness side, which is Iranian regime. So people who work in this regime, still they are Iranian. But they mind this back for they mind this 1,400 years ago. Yeah, I love this theme, if you haven't gotten to it yet, of the dragon, the color of the dragonfly that lands on your head is um, determines a whole person's fate in the book, which is remarkable. Yeah. And the yeah. person who can interpret the dragonflies has a sort of sense of power in some ways. Yeah which is a gift. We see it as a gift, I think, as a reader. Um, uh, yeah, so I think there's that incredible mingling which we, we see. And, and that life goes on, you know, despite yeah, moving to the forest and losing children, the garden still grows, you know, and that we, yeah. have, to, we have to carry on with it. Um, That's right. So one of the things that I'm interested in, and you're talking about the history and the culture of Iran, there is a whole point in the story where the history of the village is erased. You know, they go and find that the date written in the book that they thought was there was wrong in some ways. And was that a kind of metaphor for the, the way that the current regime perhaps is trying to rewrite history or wipe out history? Was that in your mind, that idea that Iran is only Islam rather than this rich culture that yeah. you're talking about? Yeah, that's right. I want to, I wanna, you know, show, uh, bring um, 40 years of Islamic revolution in compare of the whole history of Iranian culture. It was huge work, you know, to just select what you want to say from 6,000 years of, you know, civilization and in compare of 40 years of fundamental, you know, politicized Islamic regime. So uh, yes, I want to just show that how much beauty is in our culture and also, um, uh, and also say that we can still find lots of life values in our culture, our own culture. I mean, not Islamic, you know, I don't know how much our audience know that about Islam, how Islam came to Iran. Islam came to Iran by force 1400 years ago by Muslim Arabs people who attack Iran. And for 200 years, they fight with Iranians until, until they, you know, took the whole country and uh, change Iranian religion from Zoroastrian to Islam by force. But, um, but yes, we have, there are lots of beauty in Islam too. But what, why, what I experienced in the last 40 years was a politicized Islam that every day in try, the government try to inject to our culture by force. This is what right. I understand from Islam in Iran. So, and I want to show this in compare of what we already also have in Iranian culture. Here's the moment where I want to ask you if you were frightened writing this book. Because as I read it, you know, my, apart from finding it beautiful and remarkable in so many ways, I, I kept thinking she's so brave to write this book and put it out there. Even though you're not in the country, I still think it's a brave act. Was it frightening to write it? Was it frightening to publish it? Do you still worry? 
Uh, yeah, it is a good question. I was worried when I want to write this book and I was worried more the day that I want to make decision to publish this book. And I remember that I had a long conversation with my mother and my sister and, and my best friend in Iran that all of them said, just don't publish it because it's against everything, you know, that this regime tried to hide. And uh, this regime is famous in the world because of their terrorist attacks, you know, we, and also we know what Iranian leader Khomeini, who is one of my characters in, in my novel, uh, how he made fatwa for Salman Rushdie because of his book. Uh, so, yeah, we are talking about the dangerous regime. We are talking about the dangerous regime that they kill people like killing a fly. Yeah. So, yeah, so... Dangerous and risk is always around of me, but I, in same time, I feel safe because I'm living in Australia mm. and I feel uh, secure here. And also I feel I should, I am for the first time ever since I came to Australia 2010, I feel freedom. <laughs> we, never, we never experienced freedom in society. I mean, yes, I grew up in the farm, in the huge farm, alone with my family and we had our own freedom in that in there but as soon as you took your step first step out of your land you know i mean your farm you should be careful you should be keep quiet about what you believe about god islam regime this regime so yeah. we learn how to be quiet in iran and then i came here and he said all of this real and truth is here they are killing me yeah. and i felt australia gave me this opportunity to uh, touch the freedom and use this freedom to say what's really going on in iran through the story that on base of our culture or base of our beliefs and also uh, the beauty of our culture well i know before we, we started you were saying that the book is published in iran so tell us a little bit about that but i also wanted to ask who the book was for i mean did you write it for the Western world so that they get a sense that there is all this other beauty yeah. alongside what they're reading in the news? Or did you write it for Iranians in exile to, to see it? Or did you write it for Iranians in Iran? Were, who, were you even thinking about who it was for when you were writing it? And then maybe tell us a little bit about how you can find it in Iran. Yeah, so, you know, I write for all audience who loves literature and they are, you know, kind of professional literature reader. You know, yeah. my favorite, you know, my favorite reader is a people who, you know, they they love to understand about the meaning of life mm -hmm. through the literature. And um, um, I, it doesn't matter the background of the reader, Iranian, Western, you know, Eastern, Russian, Chinese, Japanese, it doesn't matter. As long as they understand literature, I think they are my reader and also i think my always i imagine or consider my readers they are a high you know educated or people who read all of the greatest literature books and this is the one of the reason that always i feel that i should be very critical to my writing i'm very strict on my writing and i edit and edit again on my, my work so um doesn't matter the background of my reader, but the level of their understanding about literature is the main thing that I want. And also, um, but in another hand, I'm Iranian. I'm talking about Iran. I'm talking about Iran, which is kind of, you know, important part of the Middle East. 
And uh, my first reader obviously should be Iranian because the stories about them. I try to be emotional. I try to be, you know, to write the history of emotions of Iranian in the last 40 years. So obviously they should read the first. But in the another, but in other hand, we I'm living in Western culture and you know, I my audience are Western people. And um, when I was writing, I remembered, you know. I consider all of these things together uh, to create this novel. But uh, as I said, the most important things for me is the level of the understanding of literature of the reader of my book is the most important. Okay. And the second part of your question was about publishing this book underground in Iran. Yes. Yeah. And as I said, so this book is all against everything that Iranian um, regime tried to hide in the last 40 years, definitely. Uh, it, this book had never chance to publish officially in Iran, but uh, in 2019, um, underground publisher, uh, I found the underground publisher and sent this the book for them, and they they said um, they sell is huge number, especially after that booker. Uh, I'm shortly the book is shortly said in the booker prize, and it's first time that Iranian read uncensored book. A story about themselves after the Islamic Republic, and these stories published in Iran. So I mean, undergroundly published in Iran, and uh, so I think everything, you know, hands together to bring this book for Iranians inside of Iran without censor. And I'm really, really happy for this. Yeah, no, it's wonderful that they can read it as well as as us. I just yeah. want to spend the last couple of minutes asking about a couple of the characters in the book, because I think we've talked about the politics a bit, but we haven't delved into the magical realism, which is in the book, which you yeah. suspend our disbelief beautifully over and over again. But also the characters are really strong. And the, the main voice is, as you say, Bahar and a young woman. We hear her sister. We hear the mother, Rosa. But the father for me, and I don't know whether it's because I'm a Persian woman with a Persian father, which is a very specific kind of relationship, I think has mm -hmm. a huge amount of powers. You know, he's the center, he saves a whole village, really. Um, were you thinking, were you trying to explain that culture? Was it, or did it just come naturally? Were you thinking of your own father um, yes. in that sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I very much, you know, my father's name is Hu Shang, same as this character. And my mother's name is Rosa, same as okay. mother. Sorry. So it, I miss them a lot. And my father is very much similar to Wu Shang. Okay. Very much, you know, the person who didn't believe he was very like person, secular person who yeah. never believed on religion, you know, in the way that, you know, believers believe. And uh, he was always critical to, you know, to politics. And in the same time, he was very independent. And he done in his the process of his life, he done what he believed is correct, even when everybody said no, it is wrong. So he was very, you know, kind of very unique character. And the, this person in my in character, the character of novel Hu Shang also is he's very unique, he's very silent. We see that we don't see any talking, you know, he has no any you know chance to talk i didn't give him chance to talk in a story because his act was enough because mm -hmm. you know, he made decision to just leave this house in tehran because of the revolution and go to the village far 
as far as we can find a remote village and then he made decision to rebuild the whole you know the village after the you know that uh, black snow and also he's a person who, who uh, encouraged to take pita to the ocean when she made, she changed to the mermaid and uh, you know he made important decision but he's a quiet person so he represent to me a you know kind of you know all of beautiful beautiful soul uh, they lived and they you know mentally tortured in last 40 years inside of iran but they never had chance to talk yeah incredibly strong that a decision to take your daughter and give her away effectively yeah. so she's happier <clears throat> is an incredibly strong thing but then there's a moment too that i recognize for lots of family my family and i know lots of others when he goes back to tehran at one point in the story and he yes. doesn't he doesn't recognize himself in it yeah. he's exactly. a foreigner and then he's also a foreigner in the forest and i feel that feels very modern that feels very much of now it is all of us it is life of uh, all of us that we don't like this regime we don't feel iran is really exactly the kind of country that we used to live there and it's totally everything changed the color of the city even changed the buildings changed the, the whole atmosphere of the country changed and it's no people i mean people who don't like this regime they hate that and we, you know, even if you go to remote village, uh, as we also, we moved to the remote village in Northern Iran, uh, but we felt even there, we feel everything is changing. Even village people are changing. We, we even, you know, as I showed also in my novel, village people change a lot in after revolution because this revolution said, said I came for poor people and down with rich people so poor people village people thought everyone has for example even one car it means they are rich and they've been against them you know it's like this regime brought people against each other yeah and and so many many things made us to think that we are living nowhere now I, in australia i feel i love australia i love australian freedom and australian people but it still is not my home Hmm. And in Iran, even I don't feel I, I, this is my home because of this regime. And also I've been jailed a few times. And so if I back, I go to Evin. I don't go to my, I can't back to my, you know, to my farm that I love that. So it seems I am belong to nowhere. And it is sad. It is it's sad. a story it's of displacement. Yeah, exactly. I know for my family, when they go back or when they have gone back years ago, the first question is, where in America are you from? Even though yeah. they're Iranian, you know, and so in America, everybody asks, so where from? Where are you from as well? So I think over time, a bit even like Bita, who becomes half, you know, of the sea and half human. She's neither. Yeah. You know, there's so much displacement that we see everywhere. It's a, it's yeah. a really remarkable, remarkable story. I, I think we have to leave it there, unfortunately. I feel like if we had some chai, we could sit and talk for hours yeah. about the story and all the beautiful parts. Thank you very much for this conversation and thank you very much for inviting me.
No, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you for, for being with us today. And thank you to, to all of us, all of you out there listening and taking part as well. Thanks for joining us. Um, thank you to the, the International Booker Prize for sponsoring this event. You can buy this wonderful book, which I highly recommend in the Edinburgh Book Festival uh, online bookshop. You can join any of these events that we're running this year. Um, they're all free to attend. You can click in. So we hope that you join lots of events over the next coming days. But thank you for joining us today. Thank you again, Shukafe. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Marjorie. Lovely to meet you. Thank you for listening. Find out more about the Edinburgh International Book Festival at edbookfest.co.uk and by following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at edbookfest. You can hear more events by subscribing to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and you can also watch a selection of our events in full on our website and YouTube channel.